Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest on West Coast Live published his first novel, Setting Free the Bears, in 1968. He has uh, published The World According to Garp, The Cider House Rules. He also wrote the screenplay for The Cider House Rules, which also won the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. He is a wrestler and a writer. And he is with us today to talk about his new book called Last Night in Twisted River, published by Random House. Please welcome John Irving. So have you ever, ever stood on a rolling log in a, in a river with peavies and pikes? Uh, yeah, I grew up in southern New Hampshire, uh, and when I was a teenager, I was working in the apple orchards in southern New Hampshire in coastal Maine, but my cousins were uh, in a logging family uh, up north, and I saw a lot of them, and my favorite first cousin, a boy I went to school with, uh, taught me how to walk on logs. So I never worked in the logging camps, um, but I saw them. Uh, I saw those river drives in the 50s and the 60s in Vermont and New Hampshire. The last one in Maine down the Kennebec River was in 76. Uh, so I, w- I was well aware of that life. It was my uncle's business and still is my cousin's business. Um, but I grew up a couple hours south of there. Your, your novel opens with, a, with a, a terrible scene of a young, of a 15-year-old who's out and, and, uh, and he hesitates and becomes lost in this log pile uh, that's moving down the river. And I mean, you capture the sort of the, the, rough, the roughness and the suddenness uh, of, that, of that life with, uh, with, uh, with frightening reality. Well, of the, of the 12 novels, this one has been, in my mind, the longest. Uh, I, I've been thinking about this story for 20 years. Um, even 20 years ago, I, I knew quite a lot about it. Uh, I knew it began in a kind of frontier town where there was one law, a bad cop. I knew it was right under the Canadian border in northern New England. I knew there was a cook, and he had a pre-teenage son. And it's something violent, though accidental, would happen in the early going of the story and make them both fugitives. And they would be on the run for 50 years. It sounds like a lot to know for a novel I didn't begin for so long, um, but uh, I did know that much 20 years ago and, and more uh, about this story. I even know, knew why the cook had a kid and why he was a boy of that age, uh, 12, I, I decided to make him. Um, I wanted uh, 50 years later for that boy to have become a writer and I wanted, uh, most of all, to give him the kind of childhood and adolescence that would almost compel him to live more in his imagination than he would ever be comfortable in his own skin. 
uh, I wanted to give him a, an almost elated life in his imagination, but a most unhappy one in his actual life. And the, the life of, of the writer, uh, the writer uh, has uh, some changes in his life that attract a lot of attention to him, attract some uh, angry people who want to follow him. There are uh, there are scenes where I mean this this uh, this writer has become extraordinarily successful uh, and and no doubt uh, there were elements of your own life that you drew on to describe what it is to be to have become a successful writer. There's a there's a point at which um, uh, the writer is told uh, is is asked about using a gnome de plume before he begins his first book. You know the idea of sort of hiding identity behind some other writer's name as a, as a means of protecting from what fate might be uh, chasing after you. Yeah, these, um, these guys, this, um, this cook and his uh, writer uh, son, um, uh, they not only have to change where they live um, on the run, but they, they do change their names um, uh, a couple of times. Um, I had a similar conversation uh, when I was a student at the Iowa Writers' Workshop with Kurt Vonnegut, who was my teacher. Um, I never uh, had the same circumstance uh, that uh, my character, Danny Bacigalupo, has needing to have a, a nom de plume. But um, I was writing my first novel when I first knew Vonnegut. Um, he was uh, its first reader. And, and I had some misgivings about publishing it under the name John Irving because uh, I was born with a different name. Um, I was born John Wallace Blunt, Jr. It would have been a terrible name for me because I'm not blunt as a writer. And <laughs> you can only imagine um, what derision would have been made of that. Um, but, and, and I was very happy to have the name Irving. My, my stepfather, when he um, married my mom, uh, legally adopted me and my name was changed and I was kind of happy to lose the blunt name because no one would ever talk to me about who my actual biological father was so I I imagined it that he must have been some kind of bad guy or, or a monster that they were trying to protect me uh, from and uh, I loved my stepfather so I was happy to have his name but but when it appeared apparent that I, I, I might actually publish a book, um, I asked uh, Vonnegut uh, about the name thing. I, I said, well, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't I have my real name? Uh, um, not my adopted name, but I was terribly worried about changing it because I liked my adopted name and more importantly, I loved my stepfather. I didn't want to hurt his feelings. And Vonnegut was, um, was instantly dismissive. He said, oh, it doesn't matter what your name is. It's a good book. Stop thinking about your name. And, and I said, oh, okay. You know, and, you know I, mean, I was like 26 or 7, you know, and, and, and uh, I needed somebody to just sort of slap me upside the head and say, oh, for God's sake, get over it. You know? um, so I did. The, uh, the writer uh, has, has encountered uh, a former student uh, years later uh, who, who comes back and kind of haunts his life for a while. And and remembers that uh, as a teacher had told this former student, 
who says, I'm just a writer, that's the creative part. And, and the, uh, the writer says, no, 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 rewriting can, is the creative part and that's what you need to do. And there's a falling out and that sort of faux writer falls away. I mean, that seems to be a very keen testament of yours, I mean, to have emphasized that in the book, the idea of, of rewriting, that's where the creative work is and the pleasure is. Well, you know, any writer who doesn't believe in revision is, is uh, either lazy or kidding himself or both. Um, you can't, uh, I can't imagine um, uh, the life of a, of a writer without revision. More than half of my time as a writer is spent rewriting, more than half, uh, easily. Uh, and I, I, I can't, and the longer the book you write, the more complicated it is. Um, the more years it takes you to complete it, the more times you will have to pass through it because our voices change. Um, you are attracted to a different kind of sentence uh, four or five years later than you were when you might have begun a book. And somehow you have to go back and, and make the book all seem to be spoken in the same breath. Um, uh, as if it, it came naturally off the top of your head, but it didn't. No such thing ever was natural. Um, it is a plodding, picky, two days, two pages a day kind of thing, you know, if you're lucky. I, I would never complain about two pages a day. Uh, you have to have a couple of one and two paragraph days in order to occasionally have a, oh, you know, a, a big outpouring, like a five or six page day. But, you know, that doesn't happen to you un unless you've gone through 30 or 40 two paragraph days, you know. And I work seven or eight hours a day, so. You, you said that the, this, uh, this book had been traveling around in your head for some time. Uh, the book is circular uh, in, a, in a very interesting way. Uh, and I wonder if the ending of the book had also been floating around at the same time, or did that come, I mean, how did that evolve? I don't want to give the ending away here, but I'm just trying to describe the, you know, in general terms. Well, I, I think my process as a writer it, it evolved um, directly because of those novels I read as a teenager that made me want to be a writer in the first place. And they were never anything contemporary uh, or even remotely modern. Uh, the novels I read uh, as a 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old were those 19th century novels, always plotted, usually long, uh, often with developed characters over a significant passage of time. Dickens, Hardy, and my fellow New Englanders, Melville and Hawthorne. Those are the novelists who made me want to write novels. And at that age, when I first read them, uh, all the other elements of being a novelist were too sophisticated for me to grasp. Only plot was what engaged me. Um, and by the time I was a teenager, plot was already um, old-fashioned uh, in the mind of modern or contemporary critics. It's written about today as if it were an extinct species. Even the 19th, uh, the 19th century novel is uh, referred to disparagingly by most contemporary 
critics and uh, book reviewers. But the 19th century novel is the model of the form for me. In, in my view, the novel only got worse or less after the 19th century. So that said, uh, I don't begin a novel until I know what happens at the end of the story. In fact, I write last sentences first. In 12 novels, those last sentences have never changed. Not a comma, not even the punctuation. Um, and when I get that last sentence, I make a kind of roadmap of the story in reverse, back to where I believe the novel should begin. And that process, from a last sentence which comes first to a first sentence which I get last, and which is subject to change. First sentences have often changed over the course of 12 novels. Last sentences never. Um, but that process itself, um, it usually takes a year, uh, sometimes 18 months. It has been that long. And I just don't feel uh, that I can start writing a book until I have made that roadmap and have essentially plotted the story. I know who my characters are. I know when they meet and how they meet. I know if their paths cross again and when. I know if they live or die, and if they die, where and how. Uh, the action of the novel, the skeleton of the story, the scaffolding of the building I haven't yet built is all there. Um, and so then it remains to me to fill in the detail. And that's also very 19th century in my case. I love detail. Um, I'm no minimalist. Uh, I love the lavishness of physical, sensual, visual uh, uh, detail. And I didn't make that up myself either. I got it from Melville, Dickens, and Hardy. Um, those are the people I consciously sought to imitate. And it's a fairly safe bet to imitate those writers who were dead for a hundred years before you even read them. Because you can't imitate them. The language has changed over that period of time so significantly that you'll never sound like them. Um, the language has changed. The only thing I can truly imitate um, is the length of the sentences and the number of semicolons. You, you, you poke fun at, uh, at, at the writer who's criticized for having too many semicolons, and in that sentence of uh, commenting on that, there's a semicolon. Oh, maybe two. Or maybe two. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so like Kafka, uh, who would say that uh, if you introduce a gun in the first act, somehow it has to go off by the fourth act. That was if, Chekhov, I think. I, I'm sorry, what did I say? Did I say Kafka? You said Kafka. I said Kafka. I was thinking that Jonathan Four has Kafka in his book. Sorry, it's Chekhov. Chekhov says this about... Kafka, Kafka yeah, yeah. says a bug in the first. Yeah, the bug. And the bug has to go off by the end of it, right. Uh, so Chekhov said this thing about the play. The gun has to yeah, be... Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. All right. When you introduce an iron skillet in, in the first chapter, does it have to get wanged on somebody's head before the end of the book then? Of, of course. <laughs> <laughs> naturally, yeah, naturally. No, the, the, the skillet was very much in, in place in that skeleton of the story, in that plot of the story I described. Sure, um, it, it was there. What was, what was somewhat different about this book was that 
the last sentence was not quickly forthcoming. And I began a number of other novels that had been in my mind far less long, simply because those first sentences were more quickly forthcoming. I got them. Uh, and for the longest time, uh, as much as I knew about this novel, I also knew that there was something I didn't know. Uh, it involved a character who is pivotal uh, to the story, who befriends this cook and the cook's son. And I just, I just didn't see him clearly enough for the longest time. Additionally, I usually get some fair warning about that last sentence before I know what it is. I, I have an, a sense of its tone of voice. I know, is it melancholic? By which I mean more melancholic than the tone of the, the, the rest of the narrative. Is it lyrical? Is it a pretty sentence? Uh, is it dialogue? And if it's dialogue, is it a repetition of a line of dialogue we've heard before? I've done that more than twice. Uh, the end of a widow for one year. Don't cry, honey. It's just Ruth and me. Um, it's just Eddie and me. Um, uh, that line of dialogue sort of lifted from the first chapter in a wholly different context. The refrain at the end of the Cider House Rules, Princes of Maine, Kings of New England, uh, was another one. I know what the sentence sounds like before I know what it is. Uh, and I was hugely confused in the case of Last Night in Twisted River because the last sentence sounded happy, uh, even upbeat. But I knew the story. And I knew of my main characters, there would be only one left standing. I knew in whose point of view I would have to be at the end of the novel. And I kept thinking, what's he got to be happy about? I, I know everything that's happened to him. I know all of the loved ones he's lost. And I kept thinking, wait, I must be mistaken here. I must be wrong about this last sentence. So I kept writing other novels before this one. And then it's one of those things, you know, once you see it, once you get that last sentence, you think, God, why did that take 20 years? Um, <laughs> it, 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 seems, it seems obvious, you know, but, but um, I, I just don't make a move until I know I have it. It's a... Um and yet, as you, as you say, when you end up putting it together, it all has to sound in, in one voice as if it's all been sort of written of a piece rather than evolving for two decades. That's the rewriting. That's, that's totally the rewriting. As you might imagine, um, as long as the process of making a roadmap may take me, once I start writing a novel, the first draft is pretty quickly forthcoming because it's, it's as if the story has already happened to me. I know what the fates of these characters uh, are. I just, I know everything. Uh, and, and it's just the detail I'm inserting so that my entire focus is on the language, the sentences themselves, uh, the structure. How many parts are there if there are parts, like acts to a play? There are six parts to this novel. Um, Shakespeare liked six acts. Um, that's good enough for me. Um, <laughs> There are 17 chapters. I thought there were 16. In the original map, there were uh, 16. But um, I forgot a story about moose. And when I had to put the moose in, I realized it needed another chapter. So. And so do you, do, you, do you imagine the lengths of the chapters as well? 
I mean, is it, you know, or do you, or do you, do you try to make the lengths of the chapters uniform? No, um, I'm not. It's, it's a good question. You would think I was that anal, but I'm, <laughs> but actually I'm a little flexible when it comes to the length of chapters, you know, 30 pages to 60 pages roughly, that's okay, you know. Um, there's a uh, there's a there's a lovely character whose uh, whose whose love is shared by two men. There's a conflict. She keeps them in line, um, you know, and and, uh, and 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 threatens that that neither of them will have her if they can't accept the fact that that she wants to be with them both. I mean, that's a very that's a very very powerful woman's role that you created. Well, it's a sort of 60s thing, I guess, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, it's, um, uh, she is a, an infatuating uh, character, but um, uh, in reality, um, she also dies young, and who knows how it would have worked out if she hadn't. Uh, I'm enough of a pessimist to say I, I don't know that... Um, she or the two men that she's involved with could uh, realistically have um, pulled it off. It's, it's, um, it's an appealing idea at the time. Um, but she uh, literally um, uh, falls through the ice and uh, uh, both of them lose her. So. Well, so uh, the name uh, of uh, Daniel... Bacha Galupo, who ends up, uh, I mean, that's not exactly a, an easy writer's name, I mean, to, to grasp. I mean, it doesn't fit well on a cover, but I mean. No, that's why one of his first teachers, one of Danny's first teachers, suggests the, the nom de plume, which he's offended by. Um, and then for reasons of the plot, for reasons of becoming a fugitive, um, uh, he has to take a pen name uh, anyway, and he chooses for his last name, uh, Angel, the name of the boy who falls under the logs um, in the opening sentence um, of, of the book. It's a wonderful book that takes many years and has, as you have heard, uh, wonderful uh, craft and emotion, and it's called Last Night in Twisted River by John Irving, and it's published by Random House. Thank you very much for being here with us. Thank you. Thank you. John Irving. That's today's West Coast Live. Safe journey. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.